Hey, I'm Eric Torenberg, and welcome to another episode of Maker Stories, where we explore what makes the makers, what drives them, what they're scared of, how they make sense of the world, and everything in between. Our guest this week is none other than my friend Ben Casanoka. Ben's author with Reed Hoffman of The Alliance and Startup of You. He was also chief of staff to Reed Hoffman. He's been the founder of various companies. I've been looking to do this interview for a while. Before we met in person, I was a big reader of his blog in college. In this podcast, we chat about career strategy, what it means to live in permanent beta, and we also talk about things like loneliness and much more. All right, here's Ben. First of all, you started a company, Startup Review is one of three books that you've written. Yep. Uh, you uh, Reed's chief of staff, Reed Hoffman's chief of staff for two years. Yep. The um, Startup Review was, was the biggest book that you guys wrote. Uh, basically, treat, uh, the premise that you should treat your career as though it were a startup itself. Yes. Talk a little bit more for those who haven't read about its biggest premises and what, or maybe premises, and what people don't do well that, uh, naturally that, that the book can help them do better. Our, our basic thesis is that the world of work's changed. The modern career looks much different than the career our parents had. So I'm always struck by a quote that Sean Parker gave to the FT once, which is, I don't want a career. A career is something my daddy brings home late at night in a briefcase as he looks kind of tired. And I don't want that. I want a new sort of career. And I think our take is, yeah, you do want a new sort of career. It's more fulfilling to have a, a, a more dynamic career. Um, but if you also just want to stay competitive, you're going to have to think differently than prior generations. So it's a much more competitive world. It's much harder to get a job, much harder to build a career. So a lot of the assumptions that guided how we think about careers over the last 40 or 50 years, assumptions that are captured in such classic books, iconic books like What Color Is Your Parachute, those assumptions have come undone because the career ladder's broken and, and security's gone and so on. So we live in a new networked age where, uh, in, a, in a global age, where job security isn't guaranteed, companies aren't necessarily gonna invest in you, company pensions can't be relied upon, social security system isn't reliable. So what do you do? How do you, how do you actually invest in yourself and build a career that will be meaningful, but also uh, offer opportunity for you over a very long life? And when we thought about that challenge, that, that scenario, we realized that um, you know, when entrepreneurs create companies, they're doing so in kind of analogous conditions. Conditions of great uncertainty, lots of change, lots of competition. And so a lot of the strategies that we talk about and the, that you guys talk about in Product Hunt and so on, that make a great entrepreneur, you know, how they're able to adapt and evolve, how they're able to develop a competitive advantage, how they're able to build networks of people to help them, how they're able to take risk, how they use their networks to make better decisions, what we call network intelligence. A lot of those strategies actually are quite applicable to life in general. And we argue that you could be a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher, an entrepreneur, a writer, work a, a blue collar job somewhere at a nine to five, punching the clock, uh, and still be thinking of yourself as an entrepreneur and actually apply the various strategies that we talk about here in Silicon Valley to your own life. So you don't have to be starting your own company to benefit from how entrepreneurs think about adaption, uh, adaptation or how they think about intelligent risk taking. And so in the book, we, we lay out like six or seven big ideas around what the entrepreneur does when starting a company, and then what can you do in your own career, no matter what you're doing with your career. And, um, you know, we start by saying, first, you got to think like an entrepreneur. Um, you can have all the skills and tactics in the world, but if, if your mind, if your head isn't right, you've got problems. And, you know, there's a lot of commentary on what makes the entrepreneurial mind and what is it that unites entrepreneurs and look, there's a lot of diversity. Everyone's different. So always tread cautiously anytime someone says, all entrepreneurs do X and that's why they're successful. But I do think it's, I would assert and we assert in the book that um, one thing that certainly seems common to everyone here in this industry is in entrepreneurs around the world and all sorts of industries is that they're always uh, open to reinvention and actually they seek out the opportunity to learn and to grow. And for many of us, it's like, duh, but a lot that doesn't actually happen naturally. Actually, the, the natural path is a path of least resistance for humans. It's like, oh, I've, I've mastered something, I'm just gonna keep doing it over and over and over and over and over again. I'm not actually gonna try something new or try to learn or try to grow. And if I have a weakness, if I have a flaw, I'm gonna try to hide it. I'm not gonna try to talk about it because it's weak. Um, and I'm not supposed to be weak. So we call this mindset permanent beta. We say you wanna live in permanent beta, just like Gmail's in beta for many, many years. Uh, you too wanna be in beta 
your entire life. Um, and, uh, and you want to think of it as an optimistic mindset. It's like, yeah, I'm always growing. I'm in permanent beta. And, and what are some of the most rewarding things we've gotten out of the book have been people's LinkedIn head profile headlines being, you know, I'm in permanent beta. Yeah. Or I gave a talk in uh, Kentucky once and all the students had this t-shirt saying I'm in permanent beta. So it's kind of like to be part of your identity. Like what a better thing to have in your identity than like I'm growing, I'm evolving, I'm a work in progress forever. And in terms of the strategies, um, you know, we talk about uh, how do you define a competitive advantage in your career, right? In your life, um, is it just what are you passionate about? Is it just what am I good at in terms of Mark Buckingham-like strengths? Is it just what are the market needs? Uh, no, it's all of those things. We talk about how to how to define a competitive advantage in your life, kind of answering the question, what should I do with my life? We talk about how to adapt your life plans through a framework we call ABZ planning. We talk about how to take intelligent risk. Uh, how to find breakout opportunities. We argue that you know most entrepreneurial success stories are not slow and steady progress up into the right, but punctuated by breakout opportunities. And so in my own life, you know, the opportunity to partner with Reed on this book in a very meta sense is a breakout opportunity in my own life, and all careers are defined by that. So how do you identify them? How do you seize them? And then finally, how can you make better decisions through the network that you've built up, which is really important. And tap that network for intelligence to make decisions. So that, that, that's the book in a, in a nutshell. It seems that uh, you were codifying things that you and Reed had kind of been doing organically in, in some ways or, or parts of it. And it, you've taken a very entrepreneurial approach to your your career, not only career, but also personal learning and development. You wrote, you know, my startup life about your uh, startup years as a youth. And then you you went to college briefly, but, uh, but ended up pursuing other learning opportunities. Knowing what you know now, and now that you've kind of put a science around it, and also that times are a bit different. If this was 2015 and you were 17 years old or 18 years old, how would you look at your learning, you know, path in your career? In I, I think it's. I think today's world, it's 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 still a startup view world. Yeah. Um, if anything, I sometimes like to ask groups of people I'm with, they'll be like, does anyone raise your hand if you think the world's slower, easier, and understand, you know, more stable than it was before. It's like, now everything, of course, is accelerating. I think I'd probably spend even more time abroad. Like I, you know, I spent, I traveled around the world for several months and met with readers in my blog. Part of that was the inspiration for Startup View because I realized that the entrepreneurial mind, mindset, and skill set was everywhere. It wasn't just the, the unique purview of Silicon Valley. Like everyone was, could, could think this way. All around the world, people in Shanghai I met, the blog reader in Delhi. They all had the entrepreneurial capacity. And that's when I realized this can be a global framework um, for everyone. It doesn't have to just be a Silicon Valley idea. Um, so I spent some time abroad. I would spend even more time. I think I think the rise of the rest, the relative decline of American power is one of the central stories of our generation. <laughs> um, where, you know, my parents, uh, you know, were born in 1950. Uh, very different kind of arc of American power, American influence. There's so much to learn culturally, of course, and this kind of cool quirks, but also economically. We need to understand how these how these companies run in other parts of the world so we can do business with them. Um, and so I'd, I would have, you know, when I was talking to Seth Godin back in the day about um, real life university, which is what I was calling yeah. my, my learning expedition, he, he advised spend a full year in Asia, spend a full year in, uh, in like Latin America, I think he said. Um, and I, and I probably should have, and, and live is the key word, not just travel, like actually live. And I probably would have, I ended up getting back to Santiago, Chile later yeah. um, and doing that for nine months, but I would have done that even more. Yeah. And you also just recently wrote this piece, 10,000 Hours with, with Reid Hoffman, yeah. which details a lot of you know, uh, learnings. Um, and you've also talked a lot about how this kind of rise, the, the chief of staff or you know, going back, you kind of rename Apprentice role in some ways is evolving because people like Reed and Elon are seeing how helpful uh, it is for what did you know a lot of people are curious how did you what did you tell Reed in that presentation that you made to him you know uh, when, when you guys were just meeting like how did you compel and how can others compel other you know similar types of leaders that that they're the person for this type of role well I I, I described a little bit of it in, in the essay which is on my, my website kaznoka.com um you know, this is, I think what's happening is really successful people realize or continue to realize it's a known issue that their time is the most valuable resource. And they're looking to get leverage out of their time to increase their impact on the world. And that historically, busy people had in the business world had executive assistants or formerly known as secretaries. And, um, 
secretaries and EAs play a critical role in enabling a busy person to be effective. But uh, they usually don't have the strategic sense or the time to uh, kind of make sense of the bigger picture and make bigger decisions around how the principal should spend time and what projects to pursue and so on. And so I don't know exactly why just in the last few years. I mean, I think honestly part of it is, is I think Reed and I set a little bit of a, a trend. Like I've talked to so many of these, these other execs, some of them you named, you know, about like how we set it up. Um, my pitch to Reed was I had worked on the front lines with him on the book. So I was in his orbit already and just saw firsthand how chaotic it all was. And there's this, maybe this is a new macro trend of like the, the, the Reeds and Peter Thiels of the world who maintain a broad portfolio of activities. So they're not the old school, like I'm just a venture capitalist full time, or I'm just a CEO full time, or I'm just a writer. It's they, they, they want to do more and more and more and all the stuff is, is, is diverse and different from one another. And so that makes managing all that pretty hard because you're doing apples to oranges judgment calls about should I spend time on a LinkedIn project or a Greylock investment or a piece of a philanthropy effort or a political fundraiser or a public intellectual project or personal vacation or friend time. I mean, no, not any one person from any of those groups could actually make a judgment call that was rational if they had to, if they had to choose one or the other because they didn't have a big picture. Yeah, and so. I just saw all that with my very own eyes. And so I, I started talking to some people, some friends of mine about how do other people do this and what can I learn from them? And I, and my pitch to read was, look, let's, I think you need to have a team. And this is what I learned through some of my research. You need to have a team of people who are thinking about only you and your interests and have that kind of bird's eye perspective to do the compare and contrast and apples to oranges across all the different things you're doing and make sure that you're spending your time the best possible way and give you a little bit of proactive capacity to do new projects that might fall in between the cracks. Like all of us who have an entrepreneurial bone in us always have new random ideas, um, but we don't often have the resources to kind of staff them and get them going. So I also wanted to provide some of that for him. Uh, and so that's that's that was the pitch and we, we kind of talked about it and I started doing that. I ultimately did it for two years, built up a team of people and worked internally at LinkedIn and Greylock and with his philanthropy. Um, and learned a tremendous amount. And you know what I realized in one, one sense is we all are trying to scale ourselves. We all are trying to have impact. We all would love to be more efficient and better use of our time. And we all struggle with a lot of the issues Reed struggles with, which is um, what should I prioritize? And how should I spend, you know, what's the best use of my time in this particular context? And we all struggle with that. Like he's at a, a different scale than 99% right. than of people, but I in my own little way struggle with that. And so uh, a lot of the th a lot of the techniques I used with him about making decisions and so on, like I'm trying to apply in my own life. Yeah. So right now you're back again. You always have been, but in permanent beta. Yeah. You're yeah. Look, evaluating new opportunities. Yeah. About what you want to do next. How are you approaching that? You know, I think there's one of the the the, the blessings and curses of uh, being in motion is that you have a stream of opportunities that come to you. Um, so, you know, when you start in your career, you have to generate everything. You have to generate attention, you have to generate relationships, you have to reach out, and that's what I did. Right? And I still do that, um, depending on the, the yeah. situation. But I'm also now at a point where people come to me, and I get pitched on things, and people reach out to me and want to meet and so on, and come with opportunities. And so, since I, after I transitioned out of the Reed gig and after we published The Alliance, which we can get back to, and I'm still promoting that, I've been maintaining a portfolio of activities um, related to a bunch of different initiatives that I'm working on. So I'm, I'm unfocused in the sense I'm not all in on one thing, but I'm still quite busy kind of managing all these different things. And, uh, you know, if, if you're, if you're, if you're placed yourself, and this is a classic read theory on networks, like, you know, and it's part of the theory that behind LinkedIn, it's like being found part of a great LinkedIn profile, part of a great use of LinkedIn is not always searching for people, although people don't do that nearly as much as they should, but also being found. Um, being at the intersection of keywords of, of, of different memes so that when people search for things, they come upon you. And the original insight, of course, was Google uh, SEO. Uh, yeah. LinkedIn uh, cracked that pretty early on. So, um, so um, I'm part of the challenges. It's like there's so much stuff inbound that I could just be reactive yeah. and probably have a decently interesting, fulfilling life. Um, 
I know that's a little bit suboptimal because it's a lot of chaotic inbound noise and I want to create the space for me to think about now, what do I want to do and what really makes me come alive and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so it's a work, you know, it's a work of progress, but I think for someone like Reed, I mean, this is like hundred X challenge with Reed. Right. Like Reed's serendipity is unbelievable. It's like he could just do breakfast, lunch and dinner every day with like fascinating people that reach out to him who come to his office. Yeah. And spend as much time as he wants to spend, and if he wants to be three hours late, they'll show up again for the next meeting. Like, it, and uh, and he could do his whole life that way. And actually, a lot of people do that. And I actually don't think that's necessarily a bad decision if the serendipity is that good. Um, so my serendipity is not as good, but it's decent. Um, so that that's one consideration. The other is just like grappling with okay. How much does impact on the world really matter? Like, it's a religion here in Silicon Valley, and indeed one that I help. I propagated and yeah. still do to an extent. Like, have impact, change the world, solve the world's problem. But like recently, I've been wondering, like, why? What, like, what in our DNA is driving us to want to do that? Yeah. And should that really matter? And we fetishize here in the valley quantity. And here I am solving problems again. Now you're thinking that's not cool. I'm gonna. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's well, good, it's but good. also it's like think of like product on milestones, like a million yeah. people on our list, and it's millions, and then tens of millions, and hundreds of millions. And that's the metric for success. And we just glorify small impact on many people. And whereas therapists Mm -hmm. have a huge impact on a small number of people, and there are lots of people in between, but but those paths are not celebrated here. And it's hard, you spend enough time here and you start to kind of absorb the values. And I wanna step back and make sure I'm I'm not over-optimizing on the success factors that only Silicon Valley cares about. What's interesting, once someone has achieved success in a certain uh, metric, a certain standard, everything they say is kind of is kind of holier. Just seen with that much more uh, respect. Do you think? Uh, what do you think about that? Like, is that frustrating? Is that something that is just the game? And you gotta understand that if you want to have a voice, you have to have success in a traditional metric or traditional. What do you think about that? As someone who's a thinker and wants to get their ideas. Well, um, I think where 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 it starts to be frustrating is is where there's not action around it and it's just kind of musings on the world. And so this is the classic, there's a great piece in Slate about about uh, kind of uh, the Davos platitudes of like, you know, globalization is an important force in the world. You know, um, George Soros. And you're like, that's not news. Now, George Soros flew to Switzerland and said that, but that's just bloviating. Yeah. With, by a super rich person to other rich people, you know, and, and making feel, feeling good about themselves because of that. Um, and, and so I think, I think like journalists and other sorts of thinkers and writers, when it's just kind of musing on how does the world work and what's the nature of a human being and, you know, theories of human behavior and human nature, where there actually, there isn't like an action to be taken around that. We probably do give the benefit of the doubt way too much to the rich and successful. Um, and we should pay a lot more attention to other voices, Um, but we're in business and politics. It probably makes sense that, that the same statement would get more attention by people who can take action. Yeah. Um, let's get into the alliance bit. Okay. So you already written one book with Reed. Why this book? And for those who haven't read it, uh, tell us a little about it. Well, we, we, after the startup review came out, we heard from companies and companies said, how do I recruit an employee that thinks this way? Do I want to recruit an employee that thinks that way? How do I manage this sort of employee? How do I retain them? You know, these employees that are thinking entrepreneurially in permanent beta, adapting, taking risks and so on. And that's when we realized, wow, actually, yes, you do want these employees because innovative people create innovative companies. And if you want to have an entrepreneurial organization, you have to have people who themselves are entrepreneurial. I mean, you can't, if someone can't take a risk in their own life, in their own career, but then you want them to show up at at the office and say, take risk as a company, it's never going to happen. So you do want these kinds of people. Um, But it will require a different kind of compact with them, a different value proposition to successfully recruit, manage, and retain them. And so we wrote an article in Harvard Business Review about this issue, about how do you recruit, manage, and retain entrepreneurial employees, the kinds of employees that read the startup review. And we said, you can't treat them like family members. You can't, you can't promise lifetime employment. Um, they don't want that. They're not interested in that. Um, what you need to offer is an environment where their entrepreneurial instincts can flourish. You need to offer them kind of an employment compact that uh, will basically promise that they'll be have the opportunity to transform their career and make their LinkedIn profile look more impressive. So we wrote that piece in HBR, got more feedback from companies saying, 
yeah, the employer-employee compact's broken. And if we want a chance to recruit this next generation of entrepreneurial thinkers and leaders, we need to totally rethink how we, how we relate to them. And so that's, that, that was the impetus for doing the Alliance. And it was called the Alliance because we say you want to stop treating employees like family members or like free agents and start treating them as allies and, and enter into this relationship characterized by mutual investment and mutual benefits. So the company will invest in the employee for their career to be transformed. The employee will invest in the company for the company to be transformed. So it's really the full arc of the employment relationship. The startup we use for the employee says, okay, I'm trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. I want to understand how I can take control of my career. And I want to most likely work for someone else. That's what most people do. Most people don't start their own company. They go, they show up and work for someone. Right. So then you show up to work having read this book. And the company, the manager, show up having read the alliance and say, I now have a, a framework for thinking about how to relate to you. And I know I'm not going to think of you spending the next 40 years of your life here. Instead, I'm going to ask for you to do what we call a tour of duty for two, three, four years, make a real contribution. And in all likelihood, after a couple tours, you might, you might leave and that's okay. But it, it, the reason it was if we did the book and it's been fulfilling for me is because employees that read Startup Review but then show up to a workplace and have a company or manager that doesn't embrace those ideas or understand how to relate to the employee are going to be frustrated. They're not actually going to be able to be their most entrepreneurial self. Right. And so you've got to have a guide for managers. And um, and after the alliance came out, we've you know. It's had a positive response and to such an extent where I co-founded a, a management consultancy with a couple partners to actually go inside companies and train their managers on how to have better one-on-one -on -one career conversations with their employees. And so we've been working with lots of companies in the Valley actually and elsewhere helping them uh, do one-on-one -on -one conversations, lead better career conversations, build trust with their employees and, and help millennials and entrepreneurial employees especially feel like they can be their real self at this company and this company gets what they're looking for in employment. And what do you think is the biggest mistake or, or the biggest you know, recommendation you find you're, that you're telling these companies? Is, is there something that they're consistently not doing that they should be doing? Yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of things. I mean, one, one thing is, is people do great work when they can trust one another, mm -hmm. right? And uh, trust between managers and employees is pretty low. According to the studies, it might be at as low as points as the data started getting recorded. So why don't employees trust managers? Well, partly it's because if you can't speak openly about your career aspirations or values with your manager, you're not gonna have an honest conversation with your manager about your life. Right. And if you're not having an honest conversation, you're not gonna trust him as much, and he or she's not gonna trust you as much. So you need to build trust with your employee by first creating an atmosphere where they can speak openly about their career. And specifically what I mean is they need to be able to say, I might leave in a couple of years, or I might have another opportunity, or I'm thinking about starting my own company, or any number of things yeah. that might be uncomfortable for you to hear or undesirable for you to hear in some sense. But you need to create the space for them to open up in that way so that you can be an ally to them and craft a tour of duty and have them ethically commit to a tour of duty whereby they will stay for two or three or four or five years complete a real mission objective. And then if it's best for them and best for the company, leave. So we often tell companies as managers, you, you may think you're having great career conversations with your employees, but think about it. Most managers have managers themselves. Think about yeah. it. Like if you were thinking about leaving your company, would you tell your manager that before you started interviewing elsewhere? And if not, why not? And a lot of people say, no, I wouldn't. Like, I don't want, why would I tell my manager? That would freak him out or they'd be, they'd be seen as disloyal or whatever. If you got to a point where you could be open in that way, imagine the dialogue you could have to make sure your time here is really valuable, and then imagine how your manager could be an ally to you as you find that next great opportunity. So that's an area where there's a lot of work for companies to do. Now, you've been in this space for, yeah, was it the start of you, 2012? Came out in 2012, yeah. So for you know, three years longer, you've been thinking about this for a long time. And you, one thing you think about is, do I double down? Do I become you know, the expert? And you, you already are. <laughs> but like, do I spend mo you know, even more time on this or do I, do I think about some other things that you might want to go to? How deep versus, versus wide or, or uh, Cal's Report's idea of like world, you know, extreme focus and deliberate practice versus you know, pursuing serendipity in some sense. Uh, you have this consulting company, but is that what you're going to do? full-time for, for a while, or are you, are you looking for that? No, I, I, you know, in a sense, I think classic entrepreneurs are kind of like always thinking about yeah. new opportunities. I'm not spending full-time on the consultancy, I'm spending some time. We have full-time people on it. Um, 
I think the world of work, I mean, part of and I've been thinking, you know, I started working in a startup review in 2010. So I've, I've spent the better part of five years thinking hard about the world of work. And I think, I mean, I've always, like the classic thing is that cocktail parties never ask, what do you do? Like that's the, actually, I like that question. I think people spend most of their time working. I think it is interesting. What do you do? Yeah. That's an important decision you made in your life. And it yeah. tells me a lot, yeah. not, not like if you're an investment banker, I respect you. If you're a teacher, I don't respect yeah. you, not at all. But just like, I'm curious, tell me how you spend most of your time. Yeah. And I really like the Slate podcast, uh, Working, which just interviews different people about what they do all day. So yeah. I interview a bail bondsman, a garbage collector, yeah. a dictionary definer, kind of fascinating conversations about just their job. So I think work is a fascinating topic. And I think when you talk about depression and happiness and loneliness, people's experiences in the workplace really bear on that. And I think the manager-employee relationship specifically, that bilateral relationship, is hugely consequential in enabling people to do great work at work in order to make the world a better place or whatever the goal is. So I think there's all it's a huge topic and there's lots to think about and lots to do, and I think it's important work. So I hope... I hope to never fully be out of the space, yeah. even though I don't expect to spend the next 10 years being a full-time consultant to write four more books on the topic. I think for me, the, you know, the, the, the blessing and the curse is I have many different interests that are seemingly unconnected or unrelated. Right. And so you're always trying to figure out like how to create synergy right. across multiple things. So, um, for example, I'm going to Germany in, uh, this summer as part of this kind of, uh, young leaders from America and Germany talk about kind of foreign policy and the transatlantic relationship. I'm actually quite interested in that. I'm like very interested in, okay, Western Europe relation to the US, the NSA spying thing, you know, um, German economy vis-a-vis -vis other people in the EU. That has almost no bearing on anything professionally I'm doing, right? Yeah. Like I'm not gonna be monetizing that knowledge anyway. Yeah. I'm very interested in going and I'm delighted to be part of this fellowship. Um, and I'm delighted to spend seven full days in Germany, which is a huge amount of time, yep. to do this. And so I'm doing it. Um, but yeah, I struggle with, I don't know quite what that's feeding unless I want to have it like go into Washington DC think right. tank land or something. Yeah. So it's a work in progress. For me, I, 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 I want to somehow, like I always joke, and I think you know this, Eric, like the ideal life is breakfast, lunch, and dinner with writers and journalists and, and the daytime with entrepreneurs um, because entrepreneurs are not great mealtime companions. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, it's like, you know, I think about, like if you told me I have to go to a 1,500-person cocktail party, yeah. people would be probably going to be like, well, yeah, I can make a video you never come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, luckily, the people you've had on this podcast or listened to, there are like amazingly yeah. interesting people like the Roy Bahats of the yeah. world and the Brad yeah. Felds and the Reeds yeah. and, and yourself. Yeah. Of course, there's tons. I don't mean to seem like I'm this club of one. There's, there's, yeah. there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of interesting people. But this is a very large ecosystem. Yeah. And the majority of people have one-track minds with respect to tech and Silicon Valley. And I think tech's very interesting. I think about tech all day. Yeah. And I'm always reading Recode and TechRodge. I'm like fascinated by it and your stuff, of course. But like I have other things I want to think about too. Yeah. Um, and But it just comes down like it's harder to monetize yeah. um, German foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis the US. Yeah. Um, I have an idea for you, man. Okay. You got to bring back real life university. <laughs> Hear me out. This kind of, you, know, you didn't go to college. A lot of people say that people shouldn't go to college at 18. That's not the right age. Maybe they should go at 22, yeah. maybe they should go at 25. But really, there's a lot of people in San Francisco, late 20s, early 30s, and they've had some success, but they don't feel either intellectually or emotionally developed, and they don't know what to do. They're, they're lonely, yeah. they don't feel they belong. What is a, a real-life university, but that could also, like, for adults? Well, I mean, there's a couple of things there. One is we've talked about the secular church concept, yeah. which my friend Chris A. has already has dibs on being part of the choir for that. So they all have roles in the church if you're interested. Cool. Um, and, uh, of course, School of Life and other yeah. similar sorts of institutions devoted to kind of the philosophy of everyday life. So what does it mean to live, lead a good life? Um, what is meaning? How do we grapple with inevitable death? Um, what role of religion and love and infidelity and all these sorts of meaty topics. So there's that kind of stuff, which, yeah. yes, I mean, I, as I've told you and lots of people, every time I go to Renaissance Weekend or these intellectual retreats, it's the number one thing that comes up. Yeah. And then there's also just professional education and kind of like true knowledge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think companies like um, General Assembly and others are pretty interesting because really people have this obsession. I'm actually kind of burned out on the definitely burn out on K-12 education debates and even higher ed. It's like, go to college, don't go to college, I don't really give a shit because actually what matters is what are you doing for the next 80 years of your life to keep learning? Yep. 
And to go to a great college for four years and then not really be investing in yourself for 30 years is a problem. Yeah. And I'd much rather bet on the person who like every five years is like, is doing a concerted effort to like really grow their knowledge base and understand what's happening in the world. So I think there's opportunities. And you know, I, Harvard Business Review Press published the Alliance and I know the HBR guys quite well. And you know, they have there are a lot of these interesting businesses out there where you're like, God, you're charging how much for executive education? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, um, and I think there's lots of businesses to be created in that space. Um, I, again, I've looked internationally, honestly, before domestic. I mean, you've got yeah. most of the people don't live, most people in the world don't live in the US, obviously. And most of them, the school system so so screwed up. Um, uh, that they really need something like this. And so I look at companies like Laureate, which is this huge private education, or even Apollo Group, which runs University of Phoenix. And a lot of these institutions doing pretty interesting work abroad. Um, and the Coursera's of the world, of course, are interesting. And Coursera has huge international reach. Um, so I think that's, from an entrepreneurial opportunity perspective, is, is going to be an interesting area for years to come. For sure. The concept of imposter syndrome or cognitive dissonance between what you're actually capable of, what people perceive you, and status anxiety. Uh, there's a lot of talk about that in, in San Francisco right now. A lot of people are resonating. You know, Naval had this tweet the other day that uh, like his friend, his friend, quote unquote, people uh, said that people seem lonely in San Francisco. Uh, yeah. And there were a lot of you know people resonating with with that thought, and people had speculation as to maybe it's because. You know, San Francisco become like LA, where everyone's super ambitious and just kind of gunning for it, and you don't mm -hmm. know who to trust. Or maybe there's just no separation between personal and professional. Uh, you've been in the Bay for I Emmy mean, for a long time. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I don't think it's a geography issue. I think I think uh, loneliness, according to some, there's a book I read at one point. I had the word loneliness in the title by uh, co-written by the guy that did the Stanford Prison Experiment. Um, uh, you know, he, he basically claimed there's this kind of loneliness epidemic throughout the U.S. Um, so I don't think there's a, a San Francisco thing. I do think it's a thing. I still think it's, I don't think it's unique to San Fran or tech. There's some broad kind of demographic and economic reasons that I think are probably, to try to understand the issue, I think it's best to start there before getting into kind of our own little milieu here. I mean, so for example, more Americans, what's the stat? I was just reading this. It's, um... So something like 40% of Americans live alone um, with no partner, no roommate, live alone. And then some number of additional people are like kind of single mothers or partnerless. They have a kid, but they live alone. So they effectively don't have kind of a peer yeah. partner. In Germany, the stats are crazy. I saw something in this Harper's piece. I think it was something like 60% of Germans live alone. Wow. So it's just, you know, and, and that's the case because of Airbnb and other and more liquid um, marketplace of rents. And so it's like easier to find little nooks to live alone and make that actually work economically for you if you don't have a lot of money. So I think that's at a macro level, I think quite interesting. So you have lots and lots of people who are living alone, limited social interaction. Um, and then they're turning to technology um, to connect with others. And so then we have this kind of classic question of like, is is going through Facebook and emailing and tweeting and texting. Obviously, it's not as rich in interpersonal interaction as an in-person interaction, but like, is it 60% as rich, 80% as rich, 20% as rich? Right. And I think, I think the sense among the people who use tech the most, I think the realization we're coming to is it's, it's not 95% as rich, like it's maybe like 30 or 40%. <laughs> and so the relationships that you thought you had that were heavily informed by tech communication and you know, behind the screen actually aren't as rich as you thought. And so you kind of show up for your once a year catch up coffee yeah. and you realize that you're like, you kind of want to get into the family issue or whatever your issue is, but there's not an appetite on the other side. It's kind of awkward to bring up and, Oh wait, we're out of time. <laughs> like I'll see you in a year. Right. So, but I think this is, this is kind of a classic human issue. I don't think there's anything new about it. I don't think there's anything specific to Silicon Valley about it other than the prevalence of tech use here in the Bay. Interesting. When you have gone through stuff in your own personal life, as, as everyone goes through stuff, what, you know, have these kind of macro explanations of the world helped you or how, how do you, like, what, what do you turn to? Well, when I, I mean, the macro explanation thing kind of address like why, why is there a loneliness epidemic if right. there is one? I mean, on a more personal tactical level, obviously they don't do shit to help. Yeah. Like, if you're, if you're struggling in your life thinking about what are the demographics of America, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I think the, I mean, my, you know, I think there are different 
reservoirs of kind of emotional sustenance that we can kind of draw from. Obviously, your your family, um, your friends, um, mentors, um, part you know business partners. There's lots of different sources, and then you know hired guns, professionals like, yeah. like therapists. Um, so lots of different sources. I mean, for me, like you know when I had a um, a difficult breakup kind of relationship issue several years ago. I, w- I was on a plane two weeks later to uh, Colorado where I spent the weekend uh, with uh, my friend Brad Feld, who's been a you know close uh, mentor of mine for more than a decade. So, you know, just as, an, as one specific example, it's like, okay, I wanted to spend time with someone who, because classic with any issue, it's like, it's not just about that issue. Yeah. Like everything's interrelated. Like if you think it's just a relationship issue, it's probably also somewhat of a work issue. If you think it's just a work issue, it's probably a home issue, like, or it's a social life issue. So there's so many things that are interconnected. One of the challenges with with family or close personal friends is they can't always appreciate the full context of what's going on. And for me, like the breakup was just, it was challenging in its own right, but it was like connected to, okay, what am I doing in my life? What am I doing in my career? How does this all play together? And so I felt like Brad and his wife, Amy, would be a great resource to kind of talk through some of that stuff. Um, so that's generally what I do. Um, I think there's the, obviously there's like the broader thing of like obviously reach out to people who are close to you, yeah. you know, no brainer. I do think part of what's been really helpful about social media and the Naval tweet you mentioned and just the broader commentary here is it's like the you are not alone idea. Yeah. And I think Dan Savage is a genius and I think the it gets better, you're not alone. It's not just for gay youth. I mean, we can all benefit from knowing that message. Yeah. I mean, the suicide stuff and the pressure right. stuff you've talked about. I mean. And that's a really powerful message. And hearing it both in the abstract as well as reading the stories of others uh, can go a long way to kind of blunting that initial panic. Yeah. But then you need to actually engage in a substantive one-on-one conversation with somebody and be yeah. the mentor, a therapist, whatever. And I'm, I'm curious in your case, one, one for a few reasons, uh, because you started at a young age uh, kind of on a different path. And uh, you, you started a company at 15, 16? And uh, that kind of put you on a different path. You were, you know, you were around adults and connecting with them deeply. And so, how is that? Like, have you always just identified as adult, or uh, how? It's hard to have peers in that way. Like, everyone is always, you know, either way older or just different stage of life. Or, well, I mean, they get down to the question of what's a peer. I mean, there, there are there are age similar peers yeah. and there are age dissimilar peers. Right. Um, I mean, I think one of the things I, mean, I bet if. I feel like I gained a lot at a young age, you know, I was doing enterprise software, so it's like sales meetings. It wasn't like the classic consumer thing where yeah. <laughs> you don't actually have to meet with anybody in a lot of cases. So I was out doing meetings, pressing the flash. So spending lots of time in meetings with people who are much older than me. Yeah. You look old. Did people think you were a kid? I looked old for how old I actually was. I still looked pretty young, like okay. I tell you um, uh, you know, I was mostly in city government, so I was I was in the you know city of Burbank yeah. training room in front of a lot of older government employees. Yeah. Um, but I mean, one of the things you you one of the things I learned along this theme uh, because of those experiences was just is how even forty something year old adults still had their issues. I mean, one of the one of our first one of the first kind of business contacts slash clients I had for one of my first companies. I learned kind of like in the process of working with her on a, on a very discreet software project that she like was in the middle of getting a divorce and there was a bunch of kind of bad stuff happening at the house. Then, you know, I was just thinking, wow, this is like, here I was thinking, I'm just doing a business deal with you and, 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 and you're this much older, more, you know, you've negotiated these contracts far more than I have. And yet I'm learning that you're this, you're this full human being, you have all this stuff. And even in your mid forties, you're dealing with stuff. And so like here I am with, you know, if I had any teen angst, it's like that never goes away. There'll always be that angst. And I saw that up close. I never, I never had as a lot of young people do this fantasy of like, well, someday you kind of grow up and all the angst goes away. And then you've kind of found yourself and you've defined your identity. And then you just simply kind of smooth sailing through the end of time. Yeah. Like I saw very early that there are people much older struggling with effectively the same kind of stuff that yeah. I and all my age similar peers were dealing with. And it seems that at a, a young, so I'll quick anecdote, <laughs> maybe or maybe not related. Seventh grade, I was playing ping pong with Joey and I lost and then Joey said something that 
takes it to this day. He says, you never let things go. That like you're always overthinking things. You're you're never just like chill out. Like you're, yeah. never, like, you're always like, kind of like coming up with an intellectual explanation and rationalizing. Uh, and that's I think something I identified with your your blog early on that you were like yeah. really noting these trends, seeing right. them, internalizing them, and they were far more advanced than what I could have come up with. And I think my younger me is curious: did those work? <laughs> like, was it just that the theories were not best, were not uh, as good as they could have been, or is that just not the best way to like some problems really just can't be approached? in an intellectual way. Uh, and because as you've gotten older, have you, you know, changed your approach? Are you still, you know, what do you yeah. think about this? Well, I mean, I think a couple things. Number one, uh, we were talking before we started recording about the Jerry Seinfeld, Howard Stern interview, which, which is really interesting at a bunch of levels. Partly because Stern is obsessed with therapy. Stern's been in therapy for a long time and Jerry Seinfeld hadn't been through therapy and that was a topic. Another one was, is Jerry always looking for material? Like, is he ever shutting off his yeah. brain that says, I'm looking for a joke, I'm looking for a joke. And, and in the interview, Stern said, are you looking for material right now? He's like, I am. Like, as I do this interview, I'm trying, I'm thinking of lines that I could use in a, in a skit. And I just can't turn it off. And that's who I am. It's kind of like I'm a neurotic Jew. It's kind of like the, you know, the unspoken, you know, uh, reality there. Um, so... I think the, for me, yeah, I've always been a, a, someone who likes to think and analyze. I've always thought the cost benefit analysis framework is one, is like the single best thing to analyze anything. It's like everything has costs and benefits. I guess where I've evolved is similar to how kind of the profession of economics has evolved, which is, you know, early days of economics is an amazing, I've learned, my favorite blogs in the world are economics blogs. Marshall Revolution, Econ Log, I mean, they're, they're, um, Cafe Hayek, I mean, they're just great prisms on how to understand human behavior and, and life. And, you know, economics started, you know, in the early days was much more focused on the rational actor. And probably one of the biggest innovations or kind of uh, enthusiasms in economics in the last couple of decades is behavioral economics and, and a, an acknowledgement that we're irrational many of the times and often our emotions rule. And so when you model companies or behavior or social systems, you have to account for people being irrational. And I think it's hard sometimes for people who have an inclination to analyze, to acknowledge that, because like, how, well, how do you quantify the kind of emotional variability? Um, and uh, so I, I've, I've learned that. And I think I've, I just had a phone call this morning with someone who I work with, and I was giving him feedback on how to artfully use explanation points in certain emails that he was sending in order to make it seem friendlier. And, you know, early days, I sent some pretty rough emails to people I worked with just kind of saying, look, this is, I remember I had a specific piece of feedback I gave to an exec once where I said, I think this is filled with bombastic prose, which, yeah, so I think back and I can't believe I used the word bombastic, but, it, but I just kind of, whatever I thought I said. And now I realize actually swapping out a period with an exclamation point can has just the right amount of emotional kind of levity that it might actually make a difference in this interaction. And this is an interaction which we're trying to influence and persuade yeah. a client, basically. Right. So, and that matters. And I think I really have a new appreciation for how even an explanation point or just a slight touch or a, hey, Eric, as opposed to Eric, can go a long way. And I and I think that's been my biggest evolution. I'm still fundamentally who I am, which right. is an analyzer. But that's I've, I've grown a lot in that way. You have taken a role with me and a couple of my friends and other people have noticed where uh, you're sort of an advisor. I mean, intimately interested. You know, they and we come to you uh, because we really appreciate the way you, you think about approaching certain problems or, or future goals or, or tasks. And is that something that you thoroughly enjoy? Is that something that you think is like where you thrive and is the best way to uh, to influence someone? Why are you taking that role in many situations? Well, I, you know, there's a little bit of the pay it forward thing. Right? So people help me, I try to help others. People continue to help me, I continue to try to help others. I mean, it's, this is basic karma sort of thing. I haven't read this book, but I always thought it was brilliant that George W. Bush wrote a memoir called Decision Points and he organized the book through apparently the key decisions he made in his presidency. I always thought that that's a great yeah. way to organize a book because it's true. Like his pres any presidency, most lives, companies are defined by certain pivotal decisions that are made. So I tend to enjoy um, watching other people struggle with decisions, trying to help them if I can, but also like see, watch them as they make sense of different paths. 
and do their own cost benefit analysis and weigh the options. Not only, and if I can be helpful, it's great. And then also to help I learn about decisions I'm trying to make. So that aspect of helping others is something I like. So when people are at crossroads or when they're like saying, hey, I've got two offers, I could do X, I could do Y, I could work for Joe, I could work for Bob, I could have my title be X, I could have my title be Y, whatever the issue is, I like those moments of intersection. Uh, I can be unusually helpful or high impact, I think, but also that I can be taking notes on, oh, next time, like, I need to be careful not to overrate X or underrate Y when I'm making an important decision down the line. You've thought a lot about networks, you've thought a lot about uh, network strategy, you've thought about, a lot about relationships. How has your own theory uh, of your you know, personal network, of your professional network, of, of your kind of like foundational support system uh, and what make, keeps you fulfilled, how has that changed over time and what do you think about it? You know, we in Startup Review, we have 20,000 words on networks. And I, in the course of researching that chapter, I read all the books on networking that I read out at that point. So everything from Keith Frosty's Never Read Alone to Dale Carnegie to Harvey McKay's uh, Build the Well Before You're Thirsty, Dig the Well Before You're Thirsty, um, to, you know, Who's Got Your Back, Keith Frosty's follow-up book, and lots and lots of others in the space. So um, at a theory level, I feel like, you know, pretty familiar with kind of the... <laughs> The, uh, the overall or whatever of the, of the literature on the topic. Um, I, my theory has evolved, which is when I was younger, I placed a much bigger emphasis on a broad network of weak ties. Um, for example, I remember reading the study, a fit classic study in Robert Cialdini's Influence of Psychology and Persuasion, which remains top 20 business book, I think, because everything's persuasion. And Cialdini's the guy that kind of like really did the research around reciprocity and all these basic things. And Cialdini cites a study, which is like a mechanic sent postcards to his uh, customers and said, uh, I like you. And like that one phrase, I like you, like increased response by, you know, a certain amount and all this kind of stuff. So I remember I, when I was uh, quite young and early in my career, I sent a postcard to like everyone in my network. And just a test to Sarah, I said, I like you. And I included my contact information. So I, I, I tried things like that, very broad. And I, and it was kind of funny. Like I got different responses and, but, yeah, people like this hilarious postcard or great to hear from you. I meant to reach out and da, 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 da. But I did a lot of I did a lot of kind of broad outreach like that. I did a lot of blog writing and emailing and newsletters and all that kind of stuff. But when you're especially when you're younger, it's like if you if you if you're kind of into the idea of okay, I'm gonna really treat my twenties as the Odyssey years, as Dick Brooks would say or others, you wanna get exposed to a lot of different sorts of people. And so the broad networking in that sense was quite useful because I, I realized, oh, okay actually entrepreneurs aren't as interested as I thought they were as people or oh you know VCs are cool um, but they're not gods like I'll actually think of them and uh, professors are interesting and really accessible like even like famous professors like you can just get on the phone like and it is fun, kind of funny right so I learned a lot about different people in the cross sections I think over the last five to six years I've I've focused much more on deeper connections and uh, building out, you know, focusing on a smaller number of people, making sure I'm there for them and, I, and they can be there for me. In the book, we talk about the balance between, you know, weak ties and strong ties. And we, we, you know, one of the most compelling studies that I've read on the topic of networks is around how um, Broadway musicals and great teams are composed, um, the composition of the crew and cast. So in, in, in unsuccessful musicals, they tend to have a social network of the cast and crew of people who either all know each other really well, so they're all strong ties, lots of trust, but no creativity, no energy, no randomness, or it's consists fully of weak ties. And so people that don't really know each other very well, so it's lots of new ideas and energy, but no trust to actually do great work. Whereas like the killer musicals like Mamma Mia and West Side Story, those crews and cast tend to have this blend of, of strong ties and weak ties. And I find that a really helpful way to think about my own network, which is actually you always want to have some sensor radars out there. You always want to be taking some meetings at it with just totally new people, new walks of life to get that diversity of thought. Um, but you also want to be investing in that close inner circle. And it's, it's kind of like a classic greedism, which is reject false choices. It's both. It's not one or the other. But I think in the early days, I was just all about broad networking. And then I kind of moved to, okay, I actually want to have a much, a much tighter circle of close friends. And now I've moved to, now I need to do both. And I, and I want to make sure I'm doing some randomness every month while also making sure like I'm prioritizing coffee or dinner or a hangout session with a, with a close friend. Yeah. For me, I've been building this working theory or evolving theory of 
going, this is what he's saying, going both deep and wide, but like really deep, like maybe one or two best friends that I'm sharing something with, maybe we could be a romantic partner or whatever it is, and then really wide, for, I'll give you an example, at the Products and Happy Hour, there was 1,500 people showed up, my birthday was the next day, I had seven people at my house. Yeah. Like, like really deep, really wide, and yeah. kind of getting rid of some of the middle, like, oh, let's catch up, let's hear it. Do, you know? Yeah, right, right. I think that I think there's a lot to that. Um, I mean, the question is then is like why, like fifteen hundred. I mean, it's kind of how wide is yeah, wide and so thing. on. But yeah. So uh, I want to ask some closing rapid fire questions. Okay. Who comes to mind uh, when, you, uh, when you think of the term success for, and why? <laughs> um, you can't say re- not that you would. Yeah, I can tell you that, like. As you started asking the question, the person I was thinking of was David Foster Wallace before you even knew what the question was. I don't know what that says. <laughs> the problem is, of course, it's like the thing is like, look, success can be a million things in a million contexts. Right. So it's like, in the way that you define it for yourself and want Well, here's what I'd like to think it means for me, because we all have this issue yeah. of like, because by the way, there is a right answer to this question. Part of what's interesting is you've done enough of these interviews, you know, too, and I've interviewed lots of people. It's like, there's a thing you're supposed to say, and there's a thing that you might actually think, and most people say what you're supposed to say. So what you're supposed to say is, what success means is to live a life well led. It's yeah. the Dave Goldberg life. It's love your children and close to the family and so on. Yeah. It's, this, it's the it's the David, the new David Brooks yeah. book on it's it's the eulogy virtues, not yeah. the resume virtues. And I think that's right. Now I don't know if I necessarily walk the walk on that because if you ask me who do I think of, like the people that come to mind are classically successful people. I'm not thinking of like the no name neighbor who's great with yeah. his kids. <laughs> Maybe because I don't know the neighbor's name. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's yeah. my kind of convoluted answer to a simple question. Does Jim Foster Wallace actually? Because it could be interesting. To I think Jim Foster Wallace was successful in many yeah. ways. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, what do you want people to say at your funeral? You know, I think the the quote that I end my startup life with, and I'm gonna, is it Joan Didion or somebody? I don't think it's Joan Didion. It's somebody else. I quote. It's been so long. I can't even remember who, who I quoted in this. But I think fundamentally, like one of the one of the parts of that quote, and I'll dig it up. We can put it in the show notes. Of like, is is you kind of try to get the most out of life, like suck the marrow out of yeah. out of the bone, and so it's trying to like live a full life, like not just observe it, yeah. but really try to get like try to be in it, live it, get the most out of every day, and kind of live with a lot of energy, um, not in the woo woo sense, but just like truly get up in the morning, try to do stuff every day, and then, and and. And kind of, I think that's kind of the ethos that I'm striving for. Obviously, I'd like to, you know, make the world a better place in a certain way and help do my role in solving the world's ills. But, yeah. but, but this is why I struggle with a writer and on intellectual life. So, like, that's the kind of observatory life as opposed to like, you know, taking life by, by, uh, you know, with both hands and trying to shake, shake it all out and uh, figure out what it's all about during our little brief uh, moment here. Yeah. On the planet. So. Anyway. That seems like a good place to uh, stop as any. Uh, I think we did good here. All right. Excellent.